Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled Creating a Culture of Kindness by Jim Dunn. One answer to the challenges that we are facing is developing and deepening our spiritual practice. Following in the five precepts and bodhisattva vows is a start that we can all strive for. Sources include Shantideva's The Way of the Bodhisattva. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Texum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to say good morning to everyone. I hope you are coming. I see one person is here anyway and says hi. Young Hoi. So that is good to know I'm not talking into the void. It always feels strange when you're doing these things and just talking at a screen. So the topic today is basically ethics. And I want to put a little emphasis on the whole idea of creating a culture of kindness, of using ethics. And largely I'm going to follow Shanti Deva's teachings in chapter 5 of the way of the bodhisattva. So, oh, Kyla's here. That's nice. Hello, Kyla. So we'll do our usual beginning and begin with uh, the refuge prayer. I'll recite it three times. And uh, you can follow along if you know it. Obviously, we won't be able to hear you, but to just listen and follow it in your heart. I'll do it in English. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment by the merit of generosity and other good deeds. May I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment by the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, the assembly most excellent, I take refuge until I reach enlightenment by the merit of generosity and other good needs. May I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. And I really prefer to do it in English. I know they usually do it in Tibetan. But actually, in the way of the Bodhisattva, in the end of this chapter, let's see if I can find the quote. Yeah, Shanti Deva writes, Therefore I shall put this way of life into actual practice. For what can be achieved by merely mouthing syllables? Will a sick man be benefited merely by reading medical texts? So I think by hearing it in a language we all understand, it can make us feel a little deeply, more deeply feel connected to the three jewels, the three treasures. And uh, mouthing syllables just isn't quite the same. Get all my notes here together. I want to talk to ethics and morality, partly because 
I've been seeing so much in the papers about what's going on in our world. Violent crime or murders. Violent crime is actually not all that much higher than it ever has. But murders, homicides are. People are killing each other at a kind of an unbelievable rate. And something just seems to be wrong in our world. And uh, I'm not quite sure what to do about it or how to fix it. But somehow we need to create a culture of kindness. I'm not quite sure how to go about that, how we can actually change culture, except that to the extent that we can through our practice, through our own behavior. If you've heard me teach meditation, I almost always say that when I began meditating, people became nicer. And uh, I really felt as though some way I changed the world. And I did change my world anyway, at least the world I live in. Apparently I'm putting out better vibes or something and people are responding to me more positively. So if we can all work on that, then I think we will be taking a step towards creating a kinder, more compassionate culture where we really care more about each other. So the precepts kind of guide our behavior. You know, ultimately we can leave them behind when we become fully enlightened Buddhists. But for now we need guidelines for our behavior. And one way in the Dharma we look at ethics is three ways. One is an ethics of restraint, not harming, not taking that which isn't freely given, not lying, telling the truth, honoring our relationships, being responsible with our sexuality, and then not overdoing intoxicants. Or actually, it says not taking intoxicants, but as one of my teachers said, many of us take four and a half precepts. The idea is not to lose mindfulness to the extent of you become heedless, heedless and lapse into some of the other and break some of the precepts. So the second level of ethics is cultivating virtue, trying to do good things in the world and for ourselves and for others. And the third is a really more generous version, and that is doing good for others. When I took the Zen Zukai, Jukai precepts, that's a ritual in Zen, and it's a fairly big deal in Zen where you take all of the precepts and the first three, three precepts they give are called the pure precepts, not harming others, not doing evil, doing good and doing good for others. And that may sound familiar to you. I know Lama Kathy quotes a lot, the passage from the Dhammapada, the teachings of the Buddha can be summed in three lines. Do no evil whatsoever, cultivate good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So that's something you've probably heard. And I think it's a very good summary of the whole thing. But when we add the third one, instead of purify the mind of doing good for others, in some ways that is the same thing. 
It's letting go of our self-cherishing, our ego, of really serving humanity, of serving other people, of realizing we are all connected. And Ashanti Deva says somewhere, you know, just as if you get a thorn in your left hand, your right hand won't say, that's nothing to do with me. It'll just kind of automatically, without even thinking, want to pull it out and treat it. So I think the precepts are really the foundation and they permeate the whole practice. How we behave is important. So we can begin by thinking of the precepts as ways of training. When you take them, at least in the Theravada tradition, I took them years ago at the Bhavana Society, and they begin with, I undertake the training rule to abstain from taking life. I have them. Here are the little certificate they gave me. I undertake the training rule to abstain from what's not what is not given. I undertake the training rule to abstain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training rule to abstain from false speech. I undertake the training rule to abstain from malicious speech. I undertake the training rule from harsh speech. I undertake the training rule to abstain from useless speech. I undertake the training rule to abstain from wrong livelihood. You take the lifetime precepts. Bhante Gunaratana gives eight of them. I think that's it. And changes the intoxicant ones. I think he knows this culture. He's lived here a long time, studied here a long time, and taught here a long time. They change it to right livelihood or abstain from wrong livelihood, ways of making a living that harm or but in some way harmful to others. But these are training rules. And these are not do this or don't do that. It's not like some of the ways we speak of ethics that it's against the rules so we don't do it. I think that's called deontological ethics, if you like the big words for it, and the philosophies of ethics. So we have these rules, these guidelines. And uh, in the way of the Bodhisattva, Chapter 5 is generally considered dedicated to these, but he spends very little time actually talking about them. The text is in some ways structured around the six perfections. And here in chapter 5, he gives generosity and morality together. But very briefly, transcendent giving, so the teachings say, consists of the intention to bestow on everything all one owns, together with the fruits of such gift. It is indeed a matter of the mind itself. Where could beings, fishes, and the rest be placed to keep safe from being killed? Deciding to refrain from every harmful act is said to be the transcendent discipline. And the rest of this text, don't go into it more. In some translations, the one we use the most, I think, in the Sangha, the Padmakara translation, it's translated as vigilance. Stephen Batchelor translates it as a guarding alertness. Uh, another translator translates it as guarding awareness. 
but really what the text is really about is the practices. It's fairly easy to understand them. It's fairly easy to get them down to know what they are. But how do we keep on top of them? How do we really practice them? So this requires a great deal of vigilance, of awareness of our minds. That's what he's really getting at in this chapter. And I think that's a good way to look at them, of how to behave and to teach them, is to make it very clear that these things require effort on our part. They require vigilance. They require actually having a fairly deep meditation practice to fully embody them. And I should let you know that I, you should have a chat function on your screens. And if you have questions, feel free to type a question at any time. I always like questions. I kind of like to have more interaction with my audience than just talking. I get tired of hearing me talk. I don't know if you do, but I do. So he begins this chapter, and I'm going to quote quite a bit from him today. Those who wish to keep the trainings must, with perfect self-possession, guard their minds. Without this guard upon the mind, the trainings cannot be preserved. Wandering where it will, the elephant of the mind will bring us down to torment in the hell of unrelenting pain. No worldly beast, however wild and crazed, could bring such upon us such calamities. If with mindfulness's rope the elephant of mind is tethered all around, our fears will come to nothing. Every virtue will drop into our hands. Lions, tigers, elephants, oh my, and bears, snakes, and every hostile foe, those who guard the prisoners of hell, ghosts, and gold, and every evil wrath. By simple binding this, this mind alone, all these things are likewise tamed. By simple taming of this mind alone, all these things are likewise tamed. So here he kind of goes into the whole point of the whole thing. I suppose he could have said more about developing the, what the precepts are, but he was talking to an audience of monastics that have taken lifetime vows and lived in a monastic community. So they would have been very familiar with these. So here he was really emphasizing what it takes to actually practice them, to embody them. And I think... You know, we can look at it that way, too. He does talk a little bit here about the torments of the hell realms and just kind of reminding people, and this would have been a group that really did believe in karma, of the evils of this. When he talks about some of the really suffering in the lower hell realms, the Buddhists at that time had a pretty good imagination of ways people could suffer. And they would have a rather frightening picture of hell realms that we might have a little trouble accepting today, but uh, but I think they can still use it to kind of keep us in mind. The other reasons for practicing the ethics is it makes us happier. It makes us feel better. We don't have remorse. One teacher has defined meditation as practices that don't disturb the mind or allow the mind to be disturbed. So I think those are all good ways of looking at it. 
And the real thing with practicing the precepts is it's beginning a way to transform the mind, transform who we are, to become something better, more whole, more peace in the world. And that's kind of our goal here. Free from remorse, regret. The Pali word for these is sila, which also has a cooling, I believe, thing. One thing I always like to remind people of, and I think it's at the heart of this, but one of my favorite sayings, you probably use, heard me use it before, but the Chinese teacher, young man who lived in the 10th century, and at the end of his life, or near the end of his life, yes, was asked, what is the teaching of your entire lifetime? And the teacher replies, an appropriate response. And I think that really just gets to the heart of the whole Dharma. What we want to be able to do is respond appropriately to uh, whatever is going on in our lives, whatever occurs to us. How do we respond? How do we respond in a way that's appropriate, useful, compassionate, kind? And this is how we go about creating a culture of kindness, by bringing that in. And these practices of meditation, of mindfulness that we bring in, is the need for what to have a discerning mind. Sometimes it's called prajna or wisdom. But I'm not sure wisdom is the best translation for this context. I think what he, the Buddha was certainly getting at is they understood it much more as a process of intelligent discrimination or discernment. Prajna is the ability to differentiate, to be precise in what they say, what they do about what's appropriate to a given task. And it becomes more and more intuitive practice as we deepen our practice, continue our practice. And I guess the other thing that this is getting at is the underlying importance of this is not how long we meditate or spend sitting on the cushion. It's how do we behave in the rest of our life. And that's really it, why we practice, is how do we live our lives in a daily way. Most of us meditate for maybe 10 or 20 minutes a day, maybe a half hour. Some of us may meditate for an hour. I've gone to retreats where I've meditated for six or seven hours a day, and those have been very valuable. But that's not the life that we live on a daily basis. And we need to interact in the world. How do we treat the clerk in the store? the waiter or waitress in a restaurant? How do we respond to them? That's all really what we need to be aware of. How do we behave? And to do that, most of us already do a pretty good job. I think most of us try to be pretty good people. But as Suzuki Roshi said to all of his students, you're perfect just as you are but you can use a little improvement. And I think we can all use that. And that's why I think this kind of practice is important. So when we take the Bodhisattva vow, and it's a big one, there are many distractions somewhere in here. Shanti Deva talks of the thieves of unawareness that rob you of your goodness. And you have the challenge of letting go of aggressive thoughts arising 
arising the thoughts and emotions. And so what we're getting at here is really kind of watching our mind, our mind stream. You know, sometimes we just have thoughts that come to us that we just are hostile, angry, reactive. And we need to be aware of those. If I can find the quotes I'm looking for. One of the quotes I did want to mention, and I should have, is here he says, To cover the earth with sheets of leather, where could such amounts of skin be found? But with leather soles on with just my shoes, it's as though I cover all the earth. And thus the outer course of things I myself cannot restrain. But let me strain my mind and what is left to be restrained. A clear intent can fructify and bring us birth in such as Brahman's realm. The acts of body speech are less. They do not generate a like result. So again, he's emphasizing the importance of watching our minds, of being aware of our minds. You might even call it having a meta-awareness being aware of what's going on in our minds, what we are, the Pali word for that is sampajana, mindful awareness. Here, I think one of the translations they use is introspection. And I guess that's kind of right, but I really prefer awareness. Because I think that just says it a little more clearly. And we get embodied in that, then we will do a little better with it. Shanti Deva says, all those who fail to understand the secret of the mind, the greatest of all things, although they wish for joy and sorrow's end, will wander to no purpose uselessly. Therefore, I will take in hand this mind of mine. What use to me are many disciplines if I can't guard and discipline my mind. When in wild, unruly crowds, I am careful and attentive of my wounds. Likewise, an evil company, this wound my mind, I'll constantly protect. For if I carefully protect my wounds, because I fear the pain of minor injuries, why should I not protect the wound of my mind, for fear of being crushed beneath the cliffs of hell? When mindfulness is stationed like a sentinel, a guard upon the threshold of the mind, introspection or awareness will likewise be there, returning when forgotten and dispersed. If at the outset I check my mind and find it is tainted with some fault, I shall be still and self-possessed, unmoving like a piece of wood. So basically when you see something going on with your mind, it's to be aware of it and to not react, even sit like a log. I just noticed a question. Kyla wants to know the source I'm reading from. I think I mentioned it, but it is Shanti Deva, the way of the Bodhisattva, primarily the Padmakara translation group, that version, there's several translations out there, and most of them are good. There's one by Stephen Batchelor I like, and another one by Crosby and Skilton.
It's got a lot of good introductory material. And it's, I'm reading from chapter five, primarily. So, yeah, I should have gone into that a little more when I began. And I hope you all are, know who Shanti Deva is. He was really an interesting character, a sixth century monk practitioner. And this teaching came about because he really wasn't liked in the monastery where he was. All people saw him doing was just kind of wandering around, not seeming to do anything, not really interacting with others. And I think they even came up with a nickname of him, Busuku. Oh, he's the guy that eats, sleeps, and defecates. And so they thought they'd try to get rid of him. So they decided that all the monks had to give a Dharma talk. And they thought, well, if he has to give a Dharma talk, he will be so intimidated by that that he'll just leave. And then to make it a little worse, they built this rather high throne for him to clamber up onto. And they thought that would be very awkward and embarrassing for him. They were really trying to humiliate him. So it comes to give his talk, he comes to this throne kind of seat they had given him. And he just hops into it like it was nothing, kind of surprising them. And then he asks them, would you like to hear something standard that you've heard before or something original? And they thought, oh, something original would be great fun because this guy's really an idiot. And he wasn't very far into this and before they really realized that he really had a lot of wisdom and a lot to say. They all became pretty enthralled with his teaching. So enthralled, in fact, that, you know, that when he went on all 10 chapters of it, they were all listening. And somewhere in the ninth chapter, I think it was, talking about wisdom, he actually began to levitate and vanished although they could hear him finish the talk. And later on, they wanted to find his teachings and somebody actually found him. And he had two written works, this being one, hidden away in his little room. So that's the text that has come down to us today, more or less. With anything that old, there's always questions of, you know, what is the correct version? Because there were a couple of variations, and the one most people work for was one that was translated from Sanskrit into Tibetan. But it has become one of the major texts of Mahayana Buddhism. And I think in all the Mahayana traditions, they use it. Zen, I know they use it in Zen, talk about it in Zen, and all the Tibetan lineages. And it's one I really like. I've read it a couple of times at least. And this chapter I've read several times. I'm still getting ready for this talk. Oh, I haven't quite memorized it yet. But anyway, I would highly recommend studying it. It's not just something you can read. It's something that really needs a little bit of attention. And I know Lama Kathy has taught on it and Lama Tom has taught on it. And... Uh, it will probably come back to it too. Anyway, so he goes on with more of this. I'd like to read it all to you, but that would probably get a little too tedious.
he gives some very what ordinary kinds of instructions how to behave in the monastery. And if you go on a Vipassana retreat, and I would highly recommend a, one of those, but those are, you know, on a different tradition, more American Buddhism, Theravadan. For however long they are, you usually take a vow of silence for the duration of the retreat, not speaking to others, and recommend you not even make eye contact or look around. And here he says, I shall never vacantly allow my gaze to wander all around, but rather with focused mind will always go with eyes cast down. But in the world that I may relax my gaze sometimes, raise my, raise my eyes and look around. And if there are some people standing in my sight, I look at them and greet them with a warm and friendly word. And he does, you know, if you get to spy the dangers of the road, I scrutinize the four directions one by one. And when I stop to rest, I'll turn around and look behind me back along the way. I will survive the land in front and behind and carry on or else retrace my step. And every time and place, therefore, I know my needs and act accordingly. And again, this is more about being aware of being present, of really being a present to what you're doing, of guarding your mind, guarding your body, trying never to be distracted. As he says, those who strive to master concentration should never be for an instant distracted. They should always watch their minds, inquiring, where is now my mind engaged? When this becomes impossible, in case of danger or festivity, I'll act as it seems best. For it is taught the rules of discipline may be relaxed in times of generosity. And I guess that's saying that, you know, it's okay to relax every now and then, to fit in with your culture, with the group, of what's going on. So if there's a party, I guess you can enjoy the party. A festivity. These are you know, sort of temporary things, but it would be rude and not generous to not be responsive and sit there in a meditative state or trying to, with other people around, enjoying themselves. So part of this is belonging to a society, belonging in the world, and uh, part of being human like when thoughts are fixed on a chosen target, that and that alone should be pursued. Believing this way, all tasks are well performed, nothing achieved by doing otherwise. Thus we act the secondary defilement, the lack of introspection will not grow. So, you know, we try to come back to awareness, introspection. And when you feel the wish to move about, or even express yourself in speech, first examine what is in your mind. For the stead one fasts should act correctly. When the urge rises in your mind, the feelings of desire or angry hate, do not act, be not silent, do not speak. Be like a log of wood, be sure to stay. So it's better not to even respond, to be like a log of wood or a piece of wood. 
rather than get responsive and caught up in these things. With perfect and unyielding faith, with steadfastness, respect, and courtesy, with conscientiousness and awe, work calmly for the work for the happiness of others. Let us not be downcast by warring wants of childish persons quarreling. Their thoughts are bred from conflict and emotion. Let us understand and treat them lovingly. And this is something important to think about. When other people are behaving in a way that we don't approve of, that they're angry or hostile, keep in mind that they have their own burdens to bear. They have their own karma behind them. They have their own delusions, their own ignorance. And here he calls them childish. But, you know, I think we all know people that just don't behave in the way we would like and not don't behave well. But uh, just we understand that, you know, they're seeing, we need to see things from their side, that they have their own story and they require our compassion, our response. With our former president, I had lots of angry thoughts about him, but I kept thinking, this is not a happy man. This is not a man that seems to have much joy. Not sure what's going on with him. You read the story of his childhood. It was not a good one. So here's a man with a lot of delusion, a lot of bewilderment, and does deserve some compassion. I know it doesn't come easily necessarily to think that way. But I think it's important to work at that, to be aware of it. Other people have their own burdens and respond as best they can. I don't think anyone sets off and thinks that I am going to piss you in particular off today to do something to you. Everybody behaves trying to find their own way to happiness. Some people just aren't very skillful at it. And acting irreproachably for our sake and the sake of others, let us always bear in mind the thought that we are selfless like an apparition. The supreme freedom of the human life, so long awaited, now at last attained. Reflecting always thus, maintain your mind, as steady as Sumeru, king of mountains. Sumeru, Kalisha's a mountain in Tibet that's kind of considered the center of the universe in a way, and their cosmology. And here he's pointing out that one thing we have is this precious human life. As one of our teachings says, so difficult to obtain. This is our chance to attain enlightenment. The opportunity, according to one teaching, of obtaining this human life, where we have the Dharma, and we have people to teach it to us and can learn it and study it and practice is so rare that it's like a turtle in the ocean who comes up once a hundred years and actually puts his head through a ring, just floating somewhere in there. And to make the matters worse, the way it's usually taught is the turtle's blind. So you have a blind turtle in a large ocean coming up a hundred years. How often does his head go through that ring? That's how rare and difficult it is to obtain a human life. So this is our opportunity to practice. This is a reason to practice and to cultivate compassion, bodhicitta. 
He talks about how to deal with your body. Regard your body as a vessel, a simple boat from going here and there. Make it a thing that answers every wish to bring about the benefit of being. So don't get over-attached to your body. Here he uses an interesting simile. Aaron's cats and burglars achieve what they attend by going silently, unobserved. Such is the constant practice of a sage. So again, this is basically good matters, moving, being silent, being quiet as we move about, not disturbing others. The goal of every act is happiness itself, though even with great wealth, it's rarely found. So take your pleasure in the excellence of others. Let them be a heartfelt joy to you. And this is, you know, the third of the four measurables of joy, and taking joy in the happiness of others and their successes. By acting thus in this life, you'll lose nothing. In future lives, great bliss will come to you. Wrongdoing brings not joy, but pain, and in the future, dreadful torment. When you look at others, think that it will be through them that you will come to Buddhahood. Look at them with frank and loving hearts. And this is something important to think about. We really can't work this path. We can't become kind and compassionate if we don't have other people to be kind and compassionate to. Generosity doesn't work if you have nobody to give anything to. You can't practice patience if everybody is just wonderfully nice to you. So look upon all these little irritants you run into with some gratitude. These were all opportunities to practice generosity, kindness, and patience. The guy that cuts you off in traffic is there to help you, makes you a little angry, and gives you the chance to really practice being patient. And it's by practicing these things that we develop I guess these bodhisattva muscles, as it were. So as strange as it seems, you know, when somebody pisses you off, just be grateful. I have an opportunity to grow, to practice. As a friend of mine working on a doctorate in psychology said a lot of these little irritants were called another learning experience, although they didn't quite say it that way. They added a word. But, uh, But these are important things to think about. How do we interact with other people? How do we behave? How do we tolerate them? Some of the things he talks about in here are almost a little bit surprising. Eat only what is needful. Share with those who have embraced the discipline. With those who are defenseless or have fallen into evil states, give everything except the three robes of religion. Some of it is just good matters. When eating, do not gobble noisily or stuff or cram your gaping mouth. Do not sit with eggs up, legs outstretched, or coarsely rub your hands together. Do not travel, sit, or stay alone with women of another house. All of that you have seen or been told to be the cause of scandal that you should avoid. Part of that, of course, he lives in a very different time in an amast- in a monastery of celibate monks. So they had all of these rules that were fairly precise and constraining. 
but some of that is just simply good manners. And even that, I think, has its place of something to think about of how you behave. How are you kind to other people? By watching and eating somewhat mindfully and carefully, following the rules your mother taught you. Somewhere he says, not slamming doors, opening or closing doors noisily, being quiet. The actions of a bodhisattva are unbounded, so the teachings say, of these until the goal is won. Practice the practices that purify your mind. And then he goes on to give some readings. So basically follow your practice. And then on the end, the end, he kind of summarizes everything here. Everything I've been trying to emphasize. Examining again and again the state and actions of your body and your mind. This alone defines in brief the maintenance of watchful awareness. And this is the core of it. Try always to be aware of what you're doing with your mind, what your body is doing, and uh, what you're up to. And if you are having impulses, if the clashes or you know your emotions are kind of getting to you, just be like a log, sit. Sit like a log, just be quiet, don't respond. But as I said earlier, all this must be acted out in truth. For what is to be gained by mouthing syllables? What invalid was ever helped by merely reading the doctor's treatises? So, again, I would like to emphasize that this is about practice, about actually working with these things, of staying with these things. And I think that is about all I have to say today. So there's time for questions if anybody wants to have in here. Responses. I'd love to hear from you. When is a good time in one's development to take the lay precepts? I think anytime you're, you really feel ready. I think they're good to take them. Yeah, pretty much anytime you feel like you're ready to commit to them. And hopefully we'll take them seriously and really try to embody them. I know I always slip a little bit on some of the precepts that I've taken. But I try to come back to them. I try to embody them in my life. I try to watch my mind. And I think that is the key is watching your mind, be aware of your mind. Somebody called it meta-awareness of being aware of being aware, of being aware of your thoughts. Kyla wants to know, is there a specific practice that specifically cultivates letting go of ego for doing good for you? I guess I would have to say meta-practice and Tonglen. And then just being aware that it's not all about me. As I said earlier, other people have their own crosses to bear. And just kind of being aware of that, of really reminding myself that it's not personal. When other people have something that makes me first have my first impulse doing something unkind, and I need to let go of that, I just think, what is going on in their world that they are doing this? 
because really they're not doing it out of their own happiness or joy. They have their own problems. And thinking about things that way, of reframing them, I think is the way to look at that. Try to reframe the situations that you're in and think about them in a way that might be a little more helpful. And that's something to work at and how to do that. So I hope that helps answer the question. But letting go is a practice and just kind of looking at things you're clinging to. Clinging to your ideas, your thoughts, your stuff. Clinging to rules is one of the things they talk about when people take the precepts. Just don't cling to them. These are training rules. These are rules to begin to transform the mind. These are not rules that the Buddha will catch you and send you to hell if you don't follow them. These are methods of transforming the mind, training the mind. And the whole Dharma path, I think, can be thought of as just simply mind training. Changing who we are. So is there anything else? If not, we can just take a moment, contemplate these a little bit, and then I'll dedicate the merit. Just to try to make it sink in a little more. Yes. Yeah, Karma Kanga recommends the great path of awakening. And I would highly recommend that. One of Kathy's favorites and one I've studied pretty well. And it's a great book on developing all of that. Studying Shantideva is good. And essentially maintaining your practice, looking at the mind, being aware. So let us sit for a moment and then I will kind of I will begin reading the dedication of merit the aspiration that all beings find a way to peace and enlightenment, find a way to make this a kinder world of creating a culture of kindness. It's kind of what we all want to do. We want to create a world we're safe in, that we feel comfortable in. And I think following the precepts is a good start. So with that, let's just sit for a moment. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy, wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. The courageous Manjushri, who knows everything as it is, Samantabhadra, who knows in the same way, and all the Bodhisattva, may I follow in their path. I completely dedicate all this virtue. So thank you all for listening. And uh, many blessings to all of you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. 
We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Texum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.